0: Welcome to Multifamily AP360, the show where we discuss 360 degree views on mindset, passive and active multifamily investment. If you're looking for tips and strategies or just want to learn from the experiences of others, both good and bad, then listen on. This is Multifamily AP360 with your host Rama Krishna Chunchu.
1: The Multifamily AP360 Virtual Summit is bringing together today's leading multifamily investors, professionals, and operators for three days of learning and networking on February 17, 18, 19. Use code AP15 at multifamilyap360.com to save 15% on your ticket. Hope to see you there. Today's our guest is Lynn Kawawoka from Simple Passive Cash Flow. Welcome, Lynn. How are you
0: doing? Hey, I'm doing good. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me.
1: Sure. Likewise. Thank you very much. Little bit about Lane. Lane owns 8,500 plus rental units and the leader of the Hawaii Deal Pipeline Club, which has acquired over $1.2 billion of real estate by syndicating over $154 million of private equity since 2016. Lane uses his engineering degree to reverse engineer the wealth building strategies that the rich use in the top 50 investing podcast, SimplePassiveCashFlow.com. So, with that, Lane, you want to add anything to your background?
0: No, no. Let's see how um I can help people today.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much. Share me a little bit more about how exactly started into real estate space.
0: Yeah, so I I started way back and, uh, you know, I graduated college from University of Washington with a construction engineering uh, degree and industrial engineering degree. Uh, 2007, just started to work for the man and, you know, like a young professional, traveled a lot for work and, you know, I got roped into this whole idea of buying a house to live in and, um, you know, bought a house to live in 2009 and and then just decided to rent it out because I was on the road for work. And I, you know, I just decided to just the company put me up in hotels all the time. And, um, you know, I was in my early 20s. And I just thought, you know, just make a little bit side money, you know, make a little beer money on the side doing this. And that was where I discovered, you know, the, the taste of cash flow and the tenant paying down my mortgage. And you know, that was a long, long time ago, 2009. And then 2015, I bought a bunch of had 11 turnkey rentals, realized they weren't particularly scalable. And that was kind of when I started to look into this, the syndication multifamily, um,
1: world. Got it. Got it. So when did you buy those, uh, turnkey rental? properties
0: yeah they so the first couple of properties were in seattle washington where i lived and then you know i started to go to the markets that cash flowed better uh those markets were alabama indianapolis uh and uh, atlanta and there was one in little pennsylvania newcastle pennsylvania um so yeah a lot of those kind of less known tertiary secondary markets
1: got it so what is the reason behind choosing those markets
0: you know just get out of like the the main Gateway markets like you that know, we all kind of thought were good to to invest in like Hawaii California Washington you know and looking more for markets where the cap rates were a little bit higher to support a positive uh cash flow on the property you know so that it, today, the way I see it, it's just essentially making your debt service coverage ratio higher than one you know, so that you can make that little spread. And, you know, more importantly, when there's tough times and maybe you get an eviction here or, or a big repair here, you could absorb it on a month to month basis through your cash flow.
1: Got it. So Total, how many turning care rental units you have invested?
0: Um, I got up to 11 of them. And that was kind of where I realized they just weren't scalable. You know, with 11 of them, I had maybe an eviction or two every year, some kind of big catastrophe that happened every quarter, like a tree fall in the house, uh, you know, flood in one of the rooms and You know, just kind of a bigger mishap happened like every quarter, like I said. Um, but you know, the evictions were the tough thing and you know, most of the evictions are smooth, but what I would, what I discovered, you know, after I had maybe almost a dozen of these things was that one every three of these evictions ended up in like a big five or fifteen thousand dollar repair bill because the tenant just trashed the property as they left and uh, you know that just kind of made me scratch my head and like wow that's why well, i tried not to think about it right i mean i was like well that that was enough cash flow or or profits that they took in that one swoop for like that property and maybe three or four properties all in one for several years and it really made me scratch my head thinking well what am i doing that off this all for right um and it, and it kind of made me realize that this that it just wasn't scalable, right? For for 11 properties, I hit maybe a few hundred dollars of cash flow each, so maybe $3,000 of cash flow a month. You know, that's not nearly as much as, you know, most of, I see my investors need, right? Most people need like 10, $15,000 in passive income a month. You know, the, the little rental properties just aren't cut, going to cut it unless you're going to be getting 30 or 40 of those things, which you can't, you know, to get Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac financing where you max out in, in 10 year name, 10 year your spouse's name. And it's just from a, from a, a headache standpoint, it's just not scalable because if you kind of took my run rate, um and you multiply it by three for 30 rentals, you know, you're talking about eviction, you know, I shoot every other month and some big catastrophe every week or two.
1: Yeah, definitely a lot of lessons from there. So when exactly you decided to shift towards multifamily space?
0: Well, I fought it for a long time because, you know, I mean, it was the the single family homes was effective for me. Right. You know, although there was obviously the signs at that point, you know, as an investor or any business, right. You always kind of fight, you know, what you know and what you kind of intuitively know, like for me at the time was. Getting into larger deals, you know, I haven't hadn't done it yet. And there was a big reset and big difference in how the game is played with the big, large multifamilies. Um, that I, you know, I, I definitely did fight it for a long time. And you know, I went to the whole deal for like about a year or two trying to look for a deal. Then I just kind of realized it was just better to get into a deal as a passive investor first, just to kind of build up my track record. Um, and you know, getting that track record is important to kind of Ultimately they get deals you got to kind of fool brokers that you're you're for real because brokers only give deals to people who have closed deals in the past. Um, but maybe if you get one who's not paying attention, you might be able to pass it off at, on your passive investor you know you maybe, you know maybe you're a passive investor in three deals and those happen to be 200, 300 units each you, know, you might be able to sneak it past a, a broker that you have a thousand units and they might give you a deal is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, got it. Mine also similar kind of path. Yeah. Started with single families, then you know, and investing passively to build that track record, then you know, switch it towards active side. Yeah.
0: And yeah. Like, I mean it it, you know, it's nothing near like doing the active side, but you know, I mean, I think that's the hardest part is making that transition. And you know, you gotta do what you got or what you gotta do what you could do. And that's certainly something that one could do.
1: Got it, got it. So you invested passively in multiple deals, right? so top things you should consider in the um uh, in the assumptions in a pro pharma or pitch deck
0: yeah i mean you know that's a tough thing right most past investors don't have the sophistication to underwrite you know a pitch deck or idea that's given to them um and that's why i think the conventional knowledge that's kind of put out there is you know invest in the jockey right do your diligence on the person um i will say that you know the way i did it you know i was able to underwrite deals so you know you look at things like reversion cap rate rent increases per year what is the full occupancy is some really high level quick things to check under the hood to make sure that you're investing with a sponsor that's you know using sound underwriting or you know being conservative on the numbers is you know like a hundred percent return in five years with you know a lower reversion cap rate you know and when it's normalized with a, with a real conservative reversion cap rate, it might go all the way down to 60% return, you know, almost half, you know, and that's, that's kind of a good example of, you know, how these numbers kind of play with each other. And, you know, like if, if past investors, you know, like that, those are the simple things that people could check. You know, it's kind of like if you're buying a car like myself and I don't know anything about cars, I just make, sh- I open the hood and make sure there's no rusty parts. That's essentially that level of check. But the, the thing is most past investors are not given any of the P and L's, the rent rolls. And, you know, they're not doing their own walks on the, the, the comparables, um, you know, to do their rent comps. And that's really where the big jump happens. You know, a sponsor says they're, you know the, the average rents are six fifty or seven fifty, and they're saying that the performer rents after rehab is nine seventy five. It's like, well, it might be true. It also could legitimately be, be like nine hundred, right? They could hopefully be stretching on that. I think that's where the LP certainly doesn't know and, and needs to be a needs to take that logical leap and trust the sponsor that they've done their checks. But I, again, I still think the LP can do the checks on. You know, at least the underwriting conservative, um, conservative, um, assumptions from the get go. Um, after that point, it's all about you know, your, your network, um, understanding, you know, having other purely passive investors that you can call to kind of, you know, do a due diligence checks or, or, you know, have you heard of this sponsor? Who are these guys? What is their assets and their ownership? What's their tracker experience? That's the hardest part, right? We're in the private placement world. It's really, really hard to determine who's legit and who's kind of just making up a fluffed up, uh, you know, track record sheet because there is no, like, no checks and balances for that.
1: Yeah, great points, right on point. So how exactly they can use their 401 case and then how exactly they strategically invest into these syndications?
0: Yeah, I mean, they can use, you know, a lot of, is you can invest through a qualified retirement plan, which is kind of the overarching term for all you know retirement accounts, including IRAs, self-directed IRAs, self-directed Roth IRAs, qualified retirement plans, or also like solo four hundred one k's too. But I'm not a huge fan of using any of these things. The the reason is, um, you know, like the I, I'm actually against a lot of these you know qualified retirement plans. I think everybody should stop using these things. A, a bunch of reasons, if you don't mind me going into them. You know, first, taxes are going to be probably higher for people in the future, especially for people like us who intend to make more income in the future. Therefore, we'll jump up the tax brackets and pay a higher rate. Therefore, you should exit out of your qualified retirement plan money now and pay the taxes on it. Secondly, look where the government entitlement money is going, right? How are we going to pay for all these, this stuff? Well, taxes is probably going to go higher in the future that, you know, the, the global tax brackets. Therefore, again, pay your taxes now, get it out now. Uh Thirdly is the biggest one. You know, when you're investing through a, t- a retirement plan, any qualified retirement plan, you're going to have to pay, you're going to have, you're going to get the passive activity losses, but you can't use them when you're investing through one of these vacuum seal retirement accounts. And this is one of my biggest things that, you know, I'll teach a lot of my investors is, you know, utilizing these retirement accounts. Um, Or the passive losses that you get from investing your money but you only do it when you invest cash so investing through a retirement account you don't get you don't get to utilize the passive activity losses on your personal tax returns and this is where a lot of people are saving you know additional fifty two hundred thousand dollars a year with or without reps real estate professional status so again you know you're investing through a retirement account you don't get this big benefit so my that's my third reason for not using qualified retirement plans. The fourth is, you know, you, when you invest in one of those things, you have to wait till you're, I think, what's 60, 70 years old to withdraw it. That's just like too dang long. Most of us are going to be retired within a decade of investing in these alternative investments and doing these other tax strategies and. You know another thing that we'll do is infinite banking too. Um, so really, I don't see any reason for using qualified retirement plans unless you're investing in things outside of real estate, which I don't know why you would be. You know, crypto's so so speculative. Um, you know, real estate has great returns; that can get you there, and one of the best risk-adjusted returns.
1: Yeah, got it. So how about using self-directed IRAs or you know those accounts?
0: Same thing. Um, you know, they can they can use those. But when they're using those again, they're not getting the tax benefits of the the, the passive activity losses. One of the big reasons people traditionally say to use these types of things is you, the growth is tax free. But I'll argue that when you're investing in real estate because you get so many passive activity losses, you don't pay taxes on it anyway. Um, so, again, like use a tool for the right role. To me, the tool of all qualified retirement plans all of which I mentioned. Therefore, are offsetting taxes when you don't have any tax benefits with it. So real estate's not one of them. Real estate has its tax benefits. So don't use your qualified retirement plans to hold real estate. Use it if you need, if you want to hold some, um, you know, crypto. Um, you want to have that speculative part of your portfolio or your stocks, your traditional investments. Or you know, if you're into life settlements, that's not. There's no tax benefits deductions to that. No, that's that's the tool for the job.
1: Got it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for.
0: Okay. But hey, you know, if that's all the money you've got, then I guess use it, right? You know, yeah. I think you know you got to get started somewhere, you know? and that's where we kind of walk with people, and we're like, all right, well, where's your money first, right? Do you have money in your checking, saving accounts? Then you know, how much money do you save every every year? Most of our investors save about their fifty thousand dollars a year. You know, you 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 invest that first cash before you put it into any retirement account. And then the next thing on the pecking order, or I call it the, the low return on equity witch hunt is the home equity in your house, then the home equity in your rental properties. You either do a HELOC refinance or you sell those assets and then, then come going after the retirement accounts or investing Yeah. Investing those very, they're kind of a last on that, that pecking order.
1: Got it. Got it. Thank you. Thank you again. So, and and GP side, total how many uh, properties you have acquired so far
0: um about 8500 units let's say we we've gone through around 65 plus deals thus far um i think when you add it all up it's about like 1.2 billion dollars of assets in their ownership today but uh, but yeah we've been kind of definitely tapering off in the last 6 months with interest rates high we've kind of moved more from value add you know real estate deals you know, i just can't make the numbers work these days um so these days we're kind of focusing more on a hedge strategy just investing in preferred equity and debt um just to you know keep our money moving too and um you know wait for better days
1: got it how exactly you scaled up to eight thousand five hundred units share me some strategies that worked for you
0: yeah i mean i think we were we were we were lucky at the right time um you know we again we started investing The right time around 2018 started to do deals um and then you know as our track record and experience grew especially in the broker community we got more deals thrown our way um and then our passive investors you know you know started to grow too um we got lucky i think i would say our big break was in the year 2020 during the pandemic there were a lot of people that just couldn't do anything you know um and You know, therefore, a lot of the deal flow kind of went to us, which we capitalized on. And then that was a big year of growth for us. We we hired all the asset managers. We kind of got out of the day to day as general partners, as principals and kind of focus on different tasks more business development tasks with lenders and other uh, investment and pref equity sources. Um, And, you know, that was kind of the growth plan. For us, right? Um, you know, today, you know, we still look for multifamily value add, but we're trying to get out of the kind of the, the space a little bit and get more towards lower risk, lower return, you know, investments, you know, such as like preferred equity, PREF. Um, and then, you know, essentially that those are debt, these are debt funds, right? That we invest in small portions of the larger cap stack um that we feel are more secure. And then we're we're focused on our on development side. You know, a couple of years ago we started on our first uh multifamily development in Huntsville. That's completed now. And we really feel that's where we where we make the most um value add there for, you know, you know, literally taking dirt to ground up, Um, you know, building something for like $120,000 a unit and selling it for $250,000 a unit, Um, you know, way more than doubling our money in in a few years.
1: So got it. so you're planning to switch towards a ground up development side?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The problem with that is like, it's really hard to find 20, 30, 30 acres of land in a, you know, a desirable path of progress area. But, um, you know, I think for us, we're kind of getting more selective today, these days. Like I said, we're not kind of really doing the, the normal, typical value add deals we were a yeah. year or two ago.
1: Got it. Got it. So would you also share any best experiences from passive side or active side?
0: Um, best experience. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's the development, you know, I mean, like, you know, class B or class C is where we started with. And, you know, I think you have a lot of bad tenants. You got a lot of delinquency, um, you know, I guess from a passive investors point of view, it doesn't matter. It's the general partners problem. It's our problem to do that for people. But, you know, so, you know, when you when your delinquency goes up, you know, to 20%, which means 80% of the people are you're paying your rents, it's frustrating. Um, especially, you know, when you have to kind of work the court system and, you know, collect on, you know, these people who can't pay, they're just not collectible and they're just essentially write-offs. Um, and that's kind of why, you know, 2018 to 2020, we kind of moved more to class Bs and then even class Bs, especially after the 2021, you know, release of all the non-moratorium rents, rent, renters who weren't paying rent. You know, even the class Bs had its shot up in in delinquency and, and non-paying renters. And we're still seeing that. And this is kind of why, you know, as we went through the development for our, you know, 230 unit in Huntsville, we were like, wow, you know, this is just so much easier working with this higher level of clientele, the, the tenants. And. Yeah, the, the, you know, it's just easier not working with tenants. I mean, it's the same thing that we thought like years ago when we had a little single family homes, no tenant term at the toilets. It, it's kind of funny that even as GPs, we don't want to deal with tenants these days anymore or, or less and less. Um, but that's where you have the most problems. And. You know, a lot of the, the problems with development can be handled, um, through effective contracts. We use, uh, guarantee maximum price contracts to, to kind of hedge the prices going up, the uncertainties in the construction project. Um, and then comboing that with our debt fund, right? Which, you know, it's pretty, it's not really relying on any operations of the investment, you know, as long as we're covered. And, you know, a lot of times we'll go into deals with 40% to 60% loan to value, you know, much lower than that golden 70% rule that we're all accustomed to got it thank you
1: so would you also share any challenging experience
0: yeah I mean when I first started as an LP it's always you know you don't know who to trust and you know definitely it's definitely like running across a landmine field and I've kind of definitely stepped on a handful of them myself um for a new investor you know when you're investing in the first bunch of deals you know I wouldn't say it's not unusual to jump on a landmine one out of five times or one out of 10 times um, it, it's going to happen until you start to develop your passive investor peer group um, but once you get that you know I think you can mitigate this counterparty risk that is out there you know investing with the wrong people um, you know there's dishonest people out there um, it's just you don't know until you get into bed with them got it
1: yeah great points So any of your personal habits that are helping you to be successful?
0: Um, You know, I think in the beginning, you know, it's just kind of driving towards a goal and just being long term oriented, you know, sticking to a, a pretty reasonable goal and, you know, trying to get there in two to three years. The understanding that, you know, getting to a goal is going to take a long time. Um, but you know, people will go crazy with that kind of mentality if you keep it for, for longer than that time. And I think at some point you've got to hire other people that are better than you. They kind of help you out. And that's, what's frustrating. I think for a lot of new folks is, you know, they want to take some of the money that they made on their first deals and, you know, or full cycle deals and, and, you know, go buy something nice. You know I've been in this business for not too too long, but you know from 2018 to now, I can say you know I haven't really bought anything. you know I still live in the same house, still rent um, you know my personal expenses to under like five six grand. The coolest thing I bought was like a, a Ford Raptor truck. That was about it. Um, but it it allows me to kind of you know when when deals don't go as well, I have the capital and I have the ca- and capital to build like the, the team underneath me, right? To grow even more but um I you know i think you know right now we're seeing in the recession you know people are, are good general partners need to prop up their deal if especially if they're in negative uh cash flow carry right now and that's why you got to go with people who have the net worth and liquidity to do that got it cool great points so any one decision that you took that
1: impacted your life you have a career positively
0: um you know i think just working that that w2 job i didn't really like you know it was a very conservative culture and you know um sure i was like you know new in my career and you got to suck it up and just do what the boss tells you and you know be a team player but you know i never really liked that and you know very early on i would say maybe on the first day of work i was like i got to get myself out of this and you know you know and that was kind of where passive investing came in and I realized like that was my ticket out of the rat race. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, it takes, you know, 10 years plus to from start from nothing from zero net worth to get yourself up to like a million and a half two million net worth. Um, you know, this is not a get rich quick thing. You know, and and when I'm talking about specifically, I can, I vividly remember for like five, seven years, I remember my, my bank account going up, you know, three, four, $5,000 every single month, just, just slowly, 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 slowly. And then when I had $50,000, I either go buy a house or do a syndication, right? Like. It just and then slowly over time i mean at some point you hit this hockey stick where you know several you know hundred thousand several hundred thousand dollars isn't much but i think the thing is like you know people who kind of started first generation wealth is what i call them um which is myself included you know you don't forget the days when you know incrementally boosting you know getting that five grand even three and a half grand um boost to your savings account meant something
1: Cool. any books that impacted your life
0: I'm not a big book fan. You know, I tell people just go out and kind of just save up your money, focus on that and, you know, buy, buy assets.
1: Cool. How can listeners can connect with you, Lynn?
0: Yeah, their podcast listeners, they can check out uh, Simple Passive Cashflow, Passive Real Estate Investing, and, um, you know, website is simplepassivecashflow.com.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much, Lane. Thank you for sharing, you know, best practices from passive investing side. Also, why you're looking towards, you know, ground up development side. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, no, Rama. Bye. That's the end of this episode of Multifamily AP 360, but we'd love to continue to help you on your journey. Head to ushacapital.com podcast to join our email list for more tips and strategies. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. This is Multifamily AP 360 with Ramakrishna Chunchu. We'll see you next time.